Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become grittier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is episode 32. Dr. Jeffrey Smith, the owner of Thinkonomics, is a retired colonel with 30 years of service in the United States Air Force and was a part of the profession of Armed Center of Excellence, also known as PACE. His research and work centers on organizational strategy, leadership development, and shaping healthy organizational culture. He is the author and contributor of several books and publications and is recognized as a highly accomplished keynote speaker, instructor, and advisor. Welcome to the Blue Grid podcast, Dr. Smith. Thank you. It's great to be here. You had 30 years of service, sir, in the Air Force. That's a long time. Tell us about your Air Force career. The Air Force has been a phenomenal part of my life. I graduated from college back in 1986 with a degree in mathematics, and my intention was I was going to be a mathematics high school instructor, teacher, and a turn of events came up, and I was married, had a two-year-old son by that point, and my father was the one who actually said, have you ever thought about the Air Force? And I hadn't thought about the Air Force, had never flown in an airplane privately before, and so I said, well, what the heck? So I looked into it, and I found out that not only was the Air Force willing to take me on, but they offered me a pilot training slot. So we took it and our Air Force career started back in 1986. And it was a 30-year journey of just a phenomenal ride. We loved our service time, my wife and I, Lisa. And what's your life like now? What do you do? So in 2015, I retired from the Air Force, but I stayed on for an additional year. So I was the original founder of PACE. I stood up under General Welsh. I, at the time, was the SAS Commandant, and General Welsh contacted me. He had heard that I was doing some teaching and organizational culture. He had some pretty grand ideas about what organizational culture needed to look like in the Air Force, and he was of the opinion that we needed a lot of work in that regard. He got me in contact with General Robin Rand, who at the time was the ATC commander. So General Rand and I got together. I taught him my material, and he sat through a five-hour course called Enhancing Human Capital. And when I was done, he shook my hand and he asked me, how long have you been at SAS? And I said, two years. And he said, that's long enough. I'm bringing you to Randolph. And so we talked about that in detail. And he gave me an opportunity to kind of pick and build my own team of people. We started with six people in a little small office area. And by the time I left Pace, we had almost 40 people and we had a multi-million dollar budget. So it was a great experience and a great opportunity to really dig my teeth into a very large organization and to try to help shape its culture. So 
I did that for a year on active duty as a colonel, retired in August 2015, and then did it for another year as a civilian. And then in September of 2016, I opened up a business with a good friend of mine from the Air Force, and we started a business called Thinkonomics. And immediately we got several contracts, a lot of military work, and we spent the first year traveling all over the country, teaching courseware, developing products, and it was very successful. Unfortunately, my partner had some health conditions that he needed to deal with, and so he was unable to continue with the work full-time. And so in mid-2017, early 2018, I became the sole proprietor of Thinkonomics and have been working Thinkonomics ever since. Had a lot of involvement with a lot of different companies, building organizational strategy, healthy culture, doing organizational assessments, and it's been a great opportunity. I love what I do. Let's start with Pace. I remember when I met you for the first time, I actually attended one of your workshops, and this was back in probably 2013 or 14, a basic military training. You were doing that workshop that you just mentioned, Enhancing Human Capital, and I still remember this because I was so impressed. Tell us about Pace. What is that? Pace started out as an accumulation of material that I had been developing since my days before the Air Force when I was dabbling in being a high school math teacher. And I was always interested in the psychology of behavior. What made people do what they do? Why do people react certain ways to certain things? And through a lifetime, not only of leadership experience, on both receiving ends of that, but a lot of study and a lot of schooling and finally getting my doctorate, I just became very interested in how I could apply some of these things that I learned at the Air Force. So when I was at Air War College, I actually put a course together, and I don't remember what I called it at the time. It wasn't Enhancing Human Capital, but it was basically the same material. It still needed to be modified quite a bit, but I started teaching that at Air War College, and it got really, really good reviews. I got a lot of people that wanted it. And then after students would graduate from Air War College, because I was a professor there in the security studies department, they would call me up. They'd be group commanders, and some of them would go on to be wing commanders around the Air Force. They'd call me up and say, hey, Jeff, could you come out and teach that course to my team? And so, for example, I went to Ileson and taught for five days, full-day courses. Every day, I think we put 2,500 people through the courses, and he had me do that about once a quarter. And then another wing found out about it, and Before I knew it, I was just traveling all over, and it was kind of difficult because I was also working a full-time job. So when General Welsh found out about the course, he'd heard about it, I believe. He heard about it through his wing commanders. And so he connected me, like I had said earlier, with General Rand, and it was their vision, General Rand's vision and Mark Welsh's vision, to build some type of a new program that was outside of the current culture. And that was really important to me. I wasn't interested in going in and putting a glossy trifold together and another ADLS module or something that you took on the computer that you pounded through and just took a test at the end, which was, in my opinion, a complete and utter waste of time. And I wasn't interested in having people sit through a mandatory brief where they had to endure things that really had no impact in their lives personally. So I had to ask a lot of questions. I was fortunately towards the end of my career, and I was in a position where I could not only talk with General Welsh, but specifically General Rand about the autonomy that I would have in building the right kind of course and the right kind of courseware. 
And General Robin ran was an amazing leader. And he just said, you have the chief behind you. You build whatever you want to build. You make the curriculum what you want to make it. And you'll get his strongest support. So the course that I ended up finalizing was called Enhancing Human Capital. And it became the cornerstone, really, of what PACE was. My second in command, if you will, was a gentleman named Jerry Perez, GS-14 at the time. And he was the one who actually came up with the word PACE. We did it on a napkin sitting at a restaurant. And so that was super helpful to have him on my team and as a wing. And so it was great. So then PACE just kind of blew up at that point. We went from like six people in a small office to having a dedicated building and, like I said, nearly 40 people and a multi-million dollar budget touching hundreds of thousands of airmen's lives with what I believe was very dynamic and very direct courseware that affected them personally. So it was important, and I really enjoyed my time there at Pace. What's enhancing human capital about? Human capital is an accumulation of really behavioral science. It's about the psychology of why people do what they do. And maybe the best way to explain the thesis of it is that you can trust that people will do what they perceive is in their best interest to do. They asked Henry Kissinger once whether or not we could trust the Russians. And he said, yes, we can absolutely trust the Russians. But then he went on to say, we can trust that the Russians will do what they perceive is in their best interest to do. And that really applies to all of us, all of human nature. You can trust that each of us will do what we perceive is in our best interest to do. Well, if that's the case, then Enhancing Human Capital was a course designed around trying to help people shape their perceptions. Because if their perception of what is good for them is what drives their behavior, then if you affect their perception, you affect their behavior. So Enhancing Human Capital drew upon many examples and life examples and some teaching that helped people stop and take a deep breath and think, you know what, my life will be a reflection of how I see myself. That's why the same course that I taught in the Air Force, I now teach to my company, it's called The Art of Leading Oneself. That if you truly want to have a life that's worth living, it starts by looking in the mirror and saying, what kind of person am I? And where am I going? Who am I becoming? And one of the things that Enhancing Human Capital really attempted to do was to allow people to make training personal. I would start the courses out. I'd look at people in the audience. Sometimes, you know, I had 2,500 people sometimes sitting there. And I would look out in the audience and I'd look at someone and look at them right in their eyes and say, this course is for you specifically. And then I'd look at the person next to them and say, this course is for you specifically. Everybody would walk away with something different from the course. You know, hundreds, maybe thousands of people would be in tears. They'd come up afterwards and just say, wow, I had no idea that this is what I was coming to today. And the only reason I share that is because that's the difference between what Enhancing Human Capital did and what, quite frankly, the majority of all Air Force and military training does. And that is, it became personal for people. It was something that they said, how does this affect me instead of a one-size-fits-all resiliency program with you know, the eight steps or the 10 steps or the 12 steps that somebody got out of a book somewhere? This was about how does it affect me? And so that's kind of a good summary of that. Just to end, I can tell you that my father, who was not only a pastor for his entire life, but also a counselor in psychology, 
he said something to me once that was very profoundly important in my development of the course and of dealing with people. And then as he said, son, everybody's pain is unique. Well, if that's true, and I do believe it, it is true, then if everybody's pain is unique, then you can't treat people's pain with the same solution. You have to meet them where they are, not where you think they are or where you are. You have to meet them where they are. And if that's the case, then the one size fits all, the ADLS modules, the click it till you're done, take a test and get a certificate until next year. None of that works. All it does is waste money and waste millions and millions of man hours of time. And so EHC was designed specifically to get around that and say, no, that's not what this training is about. This training is for you personally. And what you do with it will determine whether or not the best version of you is going to come out. So that's what it was built around. And it was, by all measurement, highly successful. We ended up, after I left Pace, Pace continued for a number of years. And I think they ended up with 12 full-time instructors teaching EHC to guard and reserve and civilians. I don't know what their final count was, but it was north of 300,000 people that had been through the course and continue to get just rave reviews. In fact, we stopped after the first year even doing critiques anymore because we could tell you what the critiques would say. 99.9% .9 of them would say, I had no idea. This is the best course I've ever had. Why didn't the Air Force give this to me 15 years ago? I would have been a better leader, a better dad. And so we got to the point where it was kind of a waste of time even taking critiques because we knew what they would say. It just was very, very successful. And so that's how EHC was born. And that's how it kind of grew and, and went from there. It's interesting to hear your reflections on the course, because when I attended the course, I don't remember, and again, it's been a long time and memory is not reliable, especially for specific content. So I don't remember specifically what I've learned, but I remember the feeling, which is what we often walk away with from something that we learn effectively or experientially. And the feeling was to me, at least, the only feeling that stood out that I still remember is that you were genuine, that you as a speaker really cared about your audience and you cared about the material and you were willing to be vulnerable with a large audience. Thank you for that feedback. <laughs> I've often said that I'm the last person that is capable or has the kind of knowledge to preach to anybody. I don't have the background to be able to preach to anybody. What I found to be successful is that I teach the things that I struggle with personally. I struggle with patience. I struggle with developing healthy relationships. I struggle in my marriage. I struggle as a dad. I struggle with all the things that all of us struggle with. And I think what I've tried to do, at least in the way I approach teaching, is to say, you know what, we're in this all together. And there are some things that we can share together. And maybe we can all grow together. And so I think maybe that's what you're describing is this idea that I tried to make my presentations personal because I had a lot of personal challenges. And what I found to help through the years was everybody had pretty much the same kind of challenges. They were different contexts and different people, obviously different relationships. But for the most part, there was a lot of commonality. Everybody that I've ever talked to or ever been involved with in teaching, everybody wants the same thing. They want tomorrow to be better than today. It doesn't matter what your background is, what your class system is, what your ethnicity is, what your gender is. Everybody wants 
tomorrow to be better than today? And the important question is, okay, well, how do we do that? What are some of the things that we need to do? And at the end of the day, it always came down to the same answer. And that was, it starts by looking in the mirror and saying, what kind of person do I want to be? Because when you answer that question, then you will begin to define what kind of life you will live. And the only other thing I would say about your comment is, you know, there's three types of learning. There's cognitive learning, which is, for the most part, what 99% of the learning in school is, and even in the Air Force, most of the ADLS modules, most of the training and resiliency, it's all in the cognitive domain. And the cognitive domain is knowledge-based, right? Facts and figures, how you add things up and how you rationally connect dots that way. And then there's the psychomotor learning. And, you know, you got to learn how to fly an airplane. There's both cognitive and psychomotor experience in that, just like riding a bicycle. You know, you've got to learn how to adjust your muscles. It's like playing the game of golf, psychomotor. And then the third one is called the affective domain of learning. And that's really where most behavior comes from. And those are the things that aren't nearly as tangible as the cognitive. So this is where a person's trust lives. This is where a person's commitment to something lives. This is where a person's loyalty lives. So in your marriage, for example, you trust your husband and your husband trusts you. That's part of the affective domain of the human experience. And that's really what EHC centered on was the affective domain. So when you say you remember feeling either positive or good or trustworthy, that was by design. This was a course that was developed and presented in the affective domain. When people walk away and you give them, you know, here's the seven steps to a healthy life, that's cognitive. But when people walk away and they're wiping tears from their eyes and they're going, you know what? It's time I start being a different kind of dad. It's time I start being a different kind of mom. It's, it's time for me to stop drinking so much because it's ruining my life. Not because they told me all about the bad things that alcohol can do to me. That's cognitive. But because it's time for me to look in the mirror and say, what kind of person am I? And what is my life going to be? See, that's affective. And that's really what generated those feelings that you remember even these many years later about that course. Yeah. What did you learn doing this work? What did you learn about people? What did you learn about yourself doing this work? First thing I learned about people is that we're really not very different. It doesn't matter, again, our backgrounds, our gender, our ethnicity, our religions. At the end of the day, we're all people, and we're all wanting that same thing, that dream of a better future, of being a part of something bigger than ourselves, which is kind of an overused term now, but it's so true. Having an in-group, having an in-group that you can, you can say, I'm part of something. Having purpose, which we can talk about more in terms of grit. Having an identity that you can feel good about. Looking around in your group of people, whether it's at work or in family or friends, and saying, I like who I am here. I like how I fit in. I like what other people think of me. And my challenges, uh, you know, I don't face them alone because I have a team of people that I've surrounded myself by, whether that's at work or home or family. And I think that that's what I've learned about people is we all want that. And at the end of the day, remember what I said earlier, we can trust that people will do what they perceive is in their best interest. That truth is so interweaved with the idea that we all want tomorrow to be better than today, that if we can affect those things in people's lives, then we can 
change people's lives for the better. We can actually decrease suicide rates if we teach people in the affective domain, if we talk about purpose and identity and the art of leading oneself, that that is where the solutions for human behavior come from. And so I've learned that about people, that we're more alike than we are different. And that's a good thing. And as far as myself, I haven't really found a lot of answers. One of the things I've struggled with is, and my wife reminds me of this, is, you know, I'll go teach all these wonderful principles and psychology, and it really helps a lot of people. I'm getting hundreds and hundreds of emails from people about how helpful it's been. But yet I still struggle with those same things. And sometimes she'll say to me, you know, you teach these things. How come you're not more patient or how come you can't be less quick to getting upset or about angry about something? When you teach people, you know, techniques for not being that way, just because you know the information doesn't necessarily mean it's automatically going to happen. You do have to make a conscious decision in your life to look in the mirror and be the kind of person that you want to be. And I've learned that about myself. You can read all the books in the world and have all the degrees on the wall. At the end of the day, you have to make a decision about what kind of person you want to be. And I really believe it's something that has to happen every single day when you get out of bed. You have to ask yourself, what kind of person am I going to be today? Because all of us have the potential to be really fun, go-lucky, humorous, accepting, patient, ambitious, motivated. Or we can get out of bed and decide we're living kind of in a depressed state and we're not feeling good about the day and we're unmotivated and we're frustrated with people and we're quick to anger. I mean, those are all decisions that we make and that affects our behavior. So I've learned that about myself, that all of these things that I teach apply to me. And maybe that's the reason why it's so personal when I present is because I understand it all so well, because it's all things that I deal with. One of the reasons that I started doing this podcast is because I struggle like everybody else and I want to learn as much as possible. And fantasizing about being greedy or ambitious or motivated is different than doing the behavior that we want to engage. So the practice is the hard part. And you're so right. The knowledge doesn't translate in the change of behavior. I mean, we know that smoking is bad. And I guess smoking is kind of a, an old example now. But we know a lot of behaviors that we engage in are not good. And we continue to do that because it feels good in the moment. Right. And going back to your earlier point, in the moment we perceive it to be in our self-interest. Yeah, that's exactly right. And there's a lot of human chemicals, dopamine and Absolutely. a lot of things that happen. I mean, there's things that we do that we know aren't good for us. We overeat. Mm-hmm. We indulge. We gain too much weight. We eat too much ice cream and fattening food. And we don't go to the gym very much. And a lot of the decisions that we're making, which result in behavior, are actually being enhanced or fed or even negated by dopamine in our system. And, you know, you do something that the body likes and that the brain likes, it feeds you the happy drug, dopamine. And when you do something that your body doesn't like and doesn't want you to do again, it robs you. Your receptors are robbed of dopamine and you get a reaction in your brain and it stops that behavior. It's the reason why you don't eat rancid sour cream because the brain takes away a chemical that says, don't do that again. We don't like that. And then when you eat ice cream, the brain pumps you with dopamine and says, oh, do more of that. Well, you know, the only thing that really separates us from just being victims of dopamine is discipline. You go to the gym because you're disciplined or you don't because you're not disciplined. How do I know that? Because there's 
a lot of times I should be at the gym and I'm not at the gym. I'm eating something I shouldn't be eating. So again, this is, goes back to the idea that I teach the things I struggle with. So I think it's really, really important to understand that a lot of what we do is to some degree, just a chemical reaction in our body. But yet as humans, we fortunately have the ability to overcome some of those desires through our own patience, discipline, fortitude. And I like the word you use, grit. Mm -hmm. Switching gears just a little, organizational culture is a reflection of those individuals working in the said organization and vice versa. What are your thoughts on organizational grit? Organizational grit is really a larger title for the summation of individual grit. There's a couple ways to look at that question. If you look at it from a business model, a company's ability to sustain through troubled times, you know, through the last couple of months that we've had, the very difficult times, some companies just have, organizations have grit and they're just going to stick to it and they're going to make the cuts they need to make and the senior leaders will maybe negate a large portion of their salaries so that they can keep the doors open. And, and you know, there's a lot of good organizational grit from a business model. But then I'm more interested in the organizational grit that comes from the cultural model. What do the people have? I like to use the example of Blockbuster Video. It used to be 10 years ago, maybe more now, there was a Blockbuster Video rental store on every corner. You couldn't throw a rock without hitting one. And everybody ran around with a Blockbuster rental card in their pocket. And today, there isn't a Blockbuster. You can't find it. They're gone. Well, what happened? Blockbuster had an identity problem. They saw themselves as a video rental company instead of an entertainment company. If they'd have seen themselves as an entertainment company, they'd have had enough organizational grit from a business model to begin to transition to streaming video like Netflix did. Netflix started out just sending videos through the mail in competition to Blockbuster. But they saw themselves as a home entertainment company and they transitioned to streaming video and they're a giant multi-billion dollar company today. You know, Blockbuster failed at that. And you can look at a lot of companies that have fallen into that trap. And that's the fact that they failed to have the organizational grit to sustain through changing times. From an organizational perspective in terms of culture, you look at a lot of companies out there. Chick-fil-A is one. Southwest Airline is one. To some extent, Google is, although there is some concern that Google's corporate level has changed some of their original culture. But I think you can see organization squadrons within the Air Force, for example. Many of them have wonderful, healthy organizational culture. And it really comes down to measuring three things, three things that determine the health of an organizational culture. And that is trust. Do people trust each other and trust their leadership? Is there shared commitment to the mission, whether it's making a widget for business and selling it or flying F-16s? Are you committed to the mission? And the third is loyalty. Do you have a sense of loyalty to it? Most of the companies I work with today, their employees lack loyalty. If you were willing to pay them more to go to a different company, they would leave immediately. That really comes down to an organizational culture. Where there's a culture where people look around and say, this is part of who I am. I'm part of this company. I have skin in the game. I have buy-in. In the military, it's vitally important to have buy-in. As we move forward, especially with the new Space Force, which I'm just thrilled has happened, I'm just very encouraged that 
this is an opportunity for Space Force to really do it right. I mean, I wish I could have been part of the 1947 transition from the Army Air Corps to the Air Force. Right now is the time for Space Force to really set a precedent for how an entire entity can develop a healthy organizational culture. And it all comes down to their leaders building an environment of commitment, loyalty, and trust. And that's something that has to be engineered. It doesn't just happen. It has to be engineered. If Space Force can do that from the beginning, if they were to develop a pace like outside of the organizational culture entity and really dial in a healthy organizational culture from the very beginning, it would pay huge dividends because then it wouldn't be a job to work for Space Force. It would be a calling. That's the effective domain. I do what I do for Space Force because this is my purpose. This is my identity. I could make more money doing it somewhere else, but mm, I, I like the in-group I'm in. I like how this makes me feel. When I look in the mirror, I'm proud of who I am and what I'm doing. I think Space Force has an opportunity to, to take their organization and make a healthy, professional culture that results in commitment, loyalty, and trust from the very beginning. Do you have any specific suggestions? What would it look like? Well, I think it would look very much like PACE. You know, the Air Force, they will template much of what the Air Force has done. I believe that there's two groups that will determine the future culture of Space Force. Two groups. The squadron commanders and the NCOs. In fact, if you want to know what the future of Space Force looks like in terms of culture, just look at the culture of the NCOs. Because the NCOs, in my opinion, are the single most important group of people in all of services, in any service. The NCOs determine culture because they don't BS. They don't hide what they think. They don't play the game. It's either real or it isn't. And so if you can get to a point where the NCOs have commitment and trust for their leadership and they develop a sense of loyalty, that creates a phenomenal opportunity for culture, healthy professional culture. And then the commanders when I say commanders, I'm talking with commanders at the lieutenant colonel level. They determine whether or not those young captains and majors and aspiring lieutenant colonels who want to be commanders, they determine whether or not they have commitment, loyalty, and trust. And that only happens if you develop an environment that these young officers grow in that results in a personal calling. In other words, they see themselves in a profession of purpose, something that gives them a profoundly important identity that resonates into their marriages and into their families and into their relationships with their moms and dads. And I mean, really something that makes a difference in how they see themselves and the life around them. And that is engineered in large part by the environment commanders build. It's the opposite of the toxic leader, which, you know, that's a term that's been overused and overused. In reality, a toxic leader what we used to call, before it was called toxic leader, was just a jackass. There were people who would be given authority and power, and they were just not good people. You know, they were intoxicated by their own power. Everything became about them. And at the end, they destroyed a lot of people. I know many people after teaching EHC would come up 
and they would be distraught and emotional and they would talk about what their boss has done or said or how they feel when they go to work because the environment their boss creates. Well, that's the opposite of building commitment, loyalty, and trust. So there's the two bookends. They need to have a top-down evaluation of what kind of culture they want. And if it's based on commitment, loyalty, and trust, then that has to be engineered in those two groups of people. That's what I would recommend to Space Force is the senior leaders have to support it wholeheartedly. And then the people who run it and teach it and engineer the culture need to understand that those are the two groups, squadron commanders and NCOs, that need to be the initial target. I'm thinking of organizations that have image that just the image of someone, we think about that image and when we think of the name organization makes us feel, oh, this is an exclusive, cool group of people and they want to be a part of that. Like if you think Navy SEALs or, you know, maybe closer to Los Angeles Air Force Base where I am, SpaceX, right? These are the organizations that are hard to get in, that require a lot of you, ask a lot of you. They don't always necessarily pay that much money. I mean, they just like any other organization, but people want to be a part of those organizations. Right. You're right on. Mm -hmm. And what these organizations have been able to do to create this identity that people want to be a part of that exclusive club. You're so spot on. Here's a great example. So go into any mall or any location where there's recruiters out in the public eye, and there's an Air Force officer and a Marine office. The Marine office has a sign in front that says, you're not good enough. And the Air Force office says, we'll pay for your college. Mm. One's transactional. One is cognitive, which is the Air Force, and one is effective. One is, you know what? You really want to write a passage? You want to be something? You want to really make a mark in your life? Be a Marine. I have a good friend, the gentleman I was telling you, John Kepko, who was the co-owner of Economics when we first began. He was a Marine for four years before he became an Air Force pilot and officer. And he has told me on countless occasions, he said, you know, I retired. As an Air Force officer, he says, but when I die, they will bury me a Marine. That's because being a Marine isn't just something you do. It's something that you are. It's more than even an identity. You've become something. You don't just do something. You don't do being a Marine. You become a Marine. The Air Force is about doing things and getting promoted and transactional, especially if you're a pilot. And that's the difference. I think Space Force could learn a huge lesson about that culture, that they could develop an environment where people see this as a calling. They see this as something bigger than themselves that they want to be a part of, and that creates commitment, loyalty, and trust. They'll never have a problem with retention. They'll never have a problem getting the highest quality people. They'll never have a problem with the internal dynamics of social problems that we see that are fairly rampant in a lot of other organizations. They'll have problems because humans are humans, but they will minimize it. The probability of minimizing those things will be much lower when people see themselves as part of something together. Do you feel that it's possible to incentivize grit, either organizationally or individually, and vice versa, disincentivize? So whatever would be the opposite of grit, so disincentivized behaviors that are associated with lack of grit. Well, the opposite of grit is hopelessness. Hopelessness. Yeah. So 
No, I don't think you can really incentivize it. But remember earlier I said that building a culture is something that has to be engineered. It is, in fact, engineered. It rarely just happens. When you do find a healthy organization that they didn't engineer, it's normally because there's a leader there somewhere that really has a lot of human skills. They're empathetic. They're humble. They recognize people. They correct. They see problems. They see mistakes as opportunities to learn. I mean, some people are just naturally gifted at that. But you can't assume that the majority are. In fact, my experience has been that the majority do not fall into that category, which means you have to engineer that. So the only thing that you could incentivize, especially, and I'll go back to the squadron commanders and the NCOs, is because they have such immense power over other people's perceptions and people do what they perceive is in their best interest to do, you can influence commanders and NCOs and award them when they do well at creating a healthy organizational culture. Those are the people who should be promoted. I'm not going to mention any names, but I can tell you I knew of this one star who was the most toxic leader I had ever met in my Air Force career. Man, I was a senior colonel at the time, and this person was extremely toxic. I had several people that came to my office and said, I'm getting out of the Air Force. I put my papers in because I can't stand to work here for this person anymore. And they had a climate assessment that came out, and it was devastating. It was terrible. It was, I mean, this person's toxic. This person, you know, is a bully. This person yells at people in staff meetings and belittles people in front of their spouses. It was terrible. Well, one year later, that person pinned on their second star. So (laughs) this is the problem. That's giving the wrong incentive for the wrong behavior. (laughs) That person should have been sidelined and removed from command and relieved from the Air Force, which, interestingly enough, happened about two years later when somebody finally said, whoa, what's going on with this person? And they did relieve that person of command. but. The point I'm making is you've got to incentivize the right thing. And in the military, you can do that through promotion and recognition. And then you've got to de-emphasize the behavior that you don't want. Remember, people do what they perceive is in their best interest to do. If I am the kind of leader that Space Force, for example, wants me to be where I'm building a healthy culture, and Space Force recognizes that, and they promote me for that, and they give me opportunities to lead because of that, other people will see that. That will be their perception, and they'll go, wow, I want to be that person. I want to get promoted. Well, those captains and majors see that, and they'll become those kind of leaders. But on the other hand, if you can be toxic and you can be a jackass and you still get promoted, people will see that too. And it doesn't just disqualify the commitment, loyalty, and trust. It also gives them an idea that, wow, I can be that way and still get promoted too. It's rewarded if I am that way because I can see somebody else being that way, being promoted. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the only other comment I would make about this, just to kind of a sidetrack a little bit, because you talked about grit and the opposite of grit is this idea of hope. First of all, I love the term grit because I think it's real. It's the twin sister of resiliency. But all of them fall within the larger bucket of something that's called hope. Hope, in its simplest form, is believing that tomorrow has the probability of being better than today. That's what hope is, that I believe tomorrow has a chance or could be 
better than today. Hopelessness or hopeless means that I have concluded that tomorrow has no chance of being better than today. You know, when they talk about the people who've tried to commit suicide and they look at the background, they do a lot of science there. They describe themselves in two ways, hopeless and empty. And that creates an environment where suicide becomes appealing or at least an answer. You know, it's a permanent answer to often temporary problems, but that's a cognitive analysis. The effective piece of this is that and this is affective. I feel hopeless. This is affective. I feel empty. See, those are internal feelings that can't be solved by cognitive solutions. Six steps to a healthy life is not going to solve hopelessness. So what is the solution? If you want to really lower the degree of suicides, it's not a cognitive solution. It's an affective solution. And it's simply, if I'm hopeless and empty, then the solution is to fill me with hope. That's the parent of grit. If someone has hope, then they are willing to cope with the pain or the adversity in their life. If they have hope that they will endure through it and tomorrow will be better than today, or at least the probability of it, well, then I have something to hang on to. I have a life preserver to say, hey, I can see a better future and I can get through this. We call that coping skills. Some people would call that grit. But remember, grit Grit is not a verb. Grit is a noun. It's like patience. It's something you have to some degree. I kind of use the example of it's kind of like a bag of rice. I mean, every time you have to go through a problem, you know, you got to take a handful of that rice out of the bag to deal with it. If all those rice pieces are parts of grit, then every time you go through something, you have to drop on those grains of grit to get through it. But what if your bag's empty? Well, you have no hope. You have no grit to draw upon. So grit is the result. It's the thing you get from hope. And if you build hope in people, if you give them an environment where they see that tomorrow can be better than today, you are filling them with hope. And suicides go down. Domestic violence goes down. All kinds of negative behavior decreases. I hope Space Force figures this out, especially early on, because we have spent more money on suicide prevention over the last five years. And every single year, as far as I know, I think there may be one exception, every year suicides have been increased. Well, somebody needs to stop and go, wait a minute. If we're spending more and doing more every year to combat suicide, but our suicides are going up, you know, there's a correlation there. Maybe we need to recognize that what we're doing isn't the right thing. And I would profoundly say that what they're doing is not the right thing because they're trying to approach it from a cognitive perspective. Like you said, everybody knows smoking isn't good for you. Everybody knows drinking excessively isn't good for you. But yet people do it all the time. Well, those are cognitive things. Now, if you address smoking and you address drinking from an effective perspective and you begin to allow people to choose for themselves what kind of life they want to lead, and you begin to really have them start looking in the mirror, that's a game changer because you're starting to build an environment of hope. That's where commanders and NCOs come in. They can build an environment of hope. I don't want to extend this too long, but I really, really think that this is an example that your listeners need to hear. 
Smoking is an interesting example because public health campaign to stop smoking focused on many aspects. So behavioral, disincentivizing it, companies who are selling tobacco and taxing. But a big part of that campaign was creating an image of smoking as something very undesirable. It became uncool to do that. One of the earliest examples of this was littering. Back in the 1950s, we didn't have a lot of littering laws in this country. And then the first thing they did is they started to cognitively change that behavior by putting out signs that said fines and, you know, pick up your trash, you know, use the trash receptacle. But it really wasn't until they got into the affective domain. And maybe you remember this, maybe you don't, I don't know. But there was a commercial that came out of an Indian standing by a mountain stream that was full of trash. He didn't say a word. The commercial, as I remember, didn't have any audio except the stream in the background. And this Indian had a tear running down his eye. And, you know, that affected people. That was an effective opportunity. And it really changed littering in this country. I find that interesting. And it's the same thing that you just described with smoking. We could say the same thing about seatbelts. There's so many things that if you create a taboo, if something is a norm, it used to be normal to smoke in the 50s and 60s. And through a series of education and both cognitive and affective teaching, it now is more of a taboo to smoke. It's a taboo not to wear a seatbelt, for example. So I think that that's an interesting dynamic. And there's a very clear lesson to be learned, I think, in Space Force of how they should be engineering their culture from the beginning. Would you tell us about the lowest, the darkest moment in your life and how did you personally cope? Oh, goodness. Actually, I've had two pretty significant moments in my life that were pretty dark. The first was I was diagnosed with a brain tumor when I was a major back in 1998. And, you know, it stopped everything. It stopped my career, my flying. You know, if it would have been a malignant brain tumor, I wouldn't be having this interview today. But fortunately, it was benign and they were able to remove it. It did rob me of my hearing in my left ear because they had to sever my acoustic nerve to remove the tumor. But I survived it. But that was a very, very, very difficult time for me. And the thing that got me through it was the fact that I had hope that the future had potential to be better than today. All right. It's what allowed me to cope through those tremendous surgeries, two eight-hour open brain surgeries, and to continue to, to try to get better. And I account for that, again, comes back to the environment that I lived in at that point. A wonderful marriage, fabulous children, great mom and dad, people at work that I trusted. I was at the Air Force Academy and worked in the math department at the time and had a wonderful commander, Colonel Littweiler, that just really cared for me and for my family. And because of all of that support group, I felt good about who I was. And I felt good about my future, even though that it was a very dark, troubling time, I knew I could get through it. That grit was kind of a team effort. And so that's how I got through that time. And then another time, probably one of the more darker times is when we discovered that my son at 16 years old was a drug addict. And he had a pretty serious opiate addiction, and all of the dynamics that go along with that. And without going into all the details, I can tell you from my wife, honey, it was a very dark time. 
And there were many, many years of struggle and heartache and tears and frustration and fear. And again, I think what got us through that was that we were, one, in it together. Two, that we believed there was a future for our son that would be better than today. We had hope for him in the future. And we drew upon that hope. So it was a combination of being in an environment where I wasn't alone, I wasn't empty, and I wasn't hopeless, which you kind of see how all this is connected, right? So if you go through a dark time in your life, your ability to cope with that is directly related to the environment you live in because that produces grit. It's directly related to the relationships you have. If they're healthy relationships, that produces grit because you're willing to endure and cope. And I know we're short on time, but I want to leave you with this one example. And I hope that the Air Force will hear this. I hope that Space Force will hear this because I think it's such a profoundly important dynamic. I'll make it quick. I call this Rewind, and I came up with this about three years ago, and I've used it many, many times in a lot of different contexts. Take your time. Don't make it quick. We have time. A young, young airman or in Space Force, one of our youngest, newest enlisted troops, they're excited. They're excited about their career. They're, they're leaving a home that is, wasn't healthy. Maybe they had a brother that was in a gang, that maybe a sister that lost her life to gang violence. I mean, not a good background. And they joined the Air Force not to just change their life, but to save their life. And when they're at BMT, for the first time, they have somebody in their life that seemed to really care for them, their instructor. And they're in their face and they're making them do things certain ways, but they also know that everything they're being told to do has a purpose. And they begin to get grit. They begin to realize that there's a better future for them. It doesn't have to be bleak. It doesn't have to be what they've seen. But then they go to their first assignment and they walk in with their paperwork and a thick vanilla envelope and some tech sergeant sees them and kind of ignores them. And they stand there a while and pretty soon they say, excuse me, I'm reporting in. And this tech sergeant comes over and just kind of, you know, flippantly grabs the paper out of his hand and says, what do you want? You know, and he looks at him. He says, what are you, an idiot? You're in the wrong place, man. Your squadron's down the hallway. You know, the kid's kind of belittled in front of this office of people by this tech sergeant. Well, the tech sergeant thinks he's smart, you know, because he's been in the Air Force all of eight or nine years. And he feels like, you know, he doesn't need to do anything for this young airman. So that airman walks out the door and, you know, a little of that grit kind of slowly goes down. You can see it in his face. Well, he's he's maybe out working as a maintenance troop at a missile field or he's working in any kind of a maintenance position. And he does something wrong. He screws something up and, and he breaks a particular important part because he maybe used the wrong tool. And this crusty old overweight civilian that was back in sack in the 1960s comes waddling out and starts screaming at this kid and telling him he's never going to become anything and he picked the wrong profession. And of course, all of his friends and peers are standing around. They're kind of laughing and chuckling at him. And once again, you kind of see this grit in his face, slowly emptying, slowly emptying. He goes to his first commander's call and the commander, who he's never met before, has all of the officers sitting in front and all the young enlisted sitting in the back. And he asks some question about how they can maybe 
do some things and build some trust in the unit, but the commander doesn't really have any buy-in to it. You can tell it's not really on his to-do list. He's kind of probably being forced to do this from the wing commander. And this kid decides to throw something up. He raises his hand. Reluctantly, this commander calls on the kid says, well, you know, how about if we did some intramural sports? Maybe we could play softball or soccer or something. He laughs. The commander laughs and says, yeah, that's just what we want to do after we work is spend more time together. And of course, everybody kind of laughs at him and pokes fun at him. Well, what they don't seem to know is in the background, this young man has a girlfriend and things aren't going well. He thought he was in love, but there he is in his dorm room and this gal comes over and she's found somebody else and she takes this little ring off that he'd given her and throws it at him and says, you're a loser and I don't want to have anything to do with you. And now he finds that that grit is gone. It's been emptied. His environment, his commander, his supervisor, that tech sergeant, any grit that he showed up with is gone. And the only thing he has left is the hopelessness that he had before he joined the Air Force. He's empty and he's hopeless. And the next morning, Space Force, we'll call it, they get the message that they just had another suicide. They found this kid hanging in his closet. So what could have prevented this? Well, let's rewind this story. He gets to his first base. He walks into the wrong office. As soon as he walks in, a tech sergeant recognizes him, come over and says, hey, Airman, welcome aboard. Shakes his hand. You must be new here. And he says, yes, I am. He says, let me see what you got. And looks at his paper. He goes, hey, you're in the wrong place. So I'll walk you down to where you need to go. And as he's walking down there, he's asking where he's from. He's trying to find out what he does for the Air Force. Before he leaves, he pats him on the back and he pulls a card out of his wallet that has his name, Tech Sergeant Jones. And he says, hey, I've been at this base for three years. I know a lot of people. You have any problems? You're not in my squadron, but I'll help you, Airman. You let me know. And he gives him this card. This Airman walks away a little taller, feeling a little better. And, you know, that level of grit increases because he begins to see a hopeful environment and a hopeful future. He does the same thing when he's out on a maintenance team. He breaks apart because things happen for young, new maintenance folks. And this time, this crusty old guy from SAC comes up. But this time, he uses this lesson as an opportunity to learn something, not an opportunity to belittle someone. He invites all the other people around and says, hey, let's walk through this thing together because this is something that can happen to any one of us if we're not careful. Let's go through the tech orders. Let's make sure we're using the right tools and let's do this. And then maybe even ask the kid, he said, hey, why don't you put a lesson together and teach some of the other young airmen what you learned from this? And this kid's like, yeah, I will totally do that. And again, he you know, had this level of grit, this resiliency that increased. Now he thinks, wow, I like where I work and I feel good about who I am when I come to work. The commander's call that he goes to this commander has all the youngest people in the front because he sees them as the single most important people to his service. They're the future of his service. He puts the youngest in the front and the seniors in the back. And this time when he introduces the idea of building trust, you can tell that this guy's sincere. He really wants this because he knows it's important to the mission capability of his unit. And so when the kid raises his hand and says, what about doing some sports? things that we can do together. He says, that's a great idea. He says, in fact, it's not only such a great idea. He says, I want you to lead a, a tiger team and I'd like you to get some of your friends together. 
you guys come up with a plan and our you know next staff meeting i want you to come in and brief how we would do that so he not only accepts what the kid says but he gives them authority and he says you're important and what you said was important so this kid again has grit and increases in his life well guess what bad things in relationships still happen and this girl still finds somebody else she still comes into his dorm room and takes off that ring and throws it at him. But this time, this kid isn't empty and hopeless. He's full and hopeful. And the first thing he does is he pulls a card out of his wallet, and it's that tech sergeant's phone number. And he calls him and he says, Man, I'm having a kind of having a bad day. And I was hoping maybe we could go get a burger or something. And this tech sergeant says, Yeah, absolutely. And instead of it ending with an email to Space Force or Air Force the next day about another suicide, that email never happens because this kid has an environment of hope. He has grit because of the people in his life. This is how you change suicide rates. It's not going to solve all of the suicides because there are mental illnesses that cannot be overcome, unfortunately. But when you build an environment of hope for people that increases commitment, loyalty, and trust, when they look around and they say, I like who I am here, that hope creates grit. And grit is what allows us to cope during times of trouble, broken relationships, health issues, not getting promoted, whatever that happened to be. We can cope and make our way through those things because of the grit we have that is the result of the environment we live in. And that would probably be the best message I could give to Space Forces. Build that kind of culture. Build that kind of environment from the ground up from day one, and you will build a force that has never been seen in this country before. Thank you so much. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? to today's conversation. I appreciate what you're doing. And I think that this is an important part of the process of learning and growing and building. And that is to communicate and to make sure that you have a lot of voices. And it sounds like your podcast has a lot of great voices out there. And I think that's super helpful. And I really respect what you're doing. So thank you for the opportunity to, to give me a voice today. Thank you. This is Dr. Jeffrey Smith, the owner of Thinkonomics. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and grit to normalize the airmen's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, all alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is anavfedotova.mil at mail.mil. It's anna.v. F E D O T O V A dot mil at mail dot